Welcome to the Max Finance Podcast, where a certified financial planner and personal finance geek discuss how to make intentional financial decisions that maximize your money and achieve your goals. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Max Finance Podcast. Today, we're talking about a subject. I'm actually surprised we haven't gotten to this particular topic a little sooner, but it's an exciting one, at least for us. It's all things 401k related. How should you pick funds? You know, how do you mimic an investment style? At least the one that we advocate for here on this podcast. There's sorts of lots of sorts of ins and ins and outs. Uh, you know, if you've got high fees, 401k loans, ETF versus mutual funds, brokerage links, so on and so forth. So we've got a lot planned. Um, where do you want to start, Lauren? Good question. Uh, well, I think maybe we can start off by just talking about why a 401k is um, important or, you know, if it's something that's available to you and why I think it's a little bit special compared to other kind of investment accounts. Yeah, I love it. That's a great one. Yeah, feel free if you've got... Yeah, so I'll start. So I think one of the... So obviously a 401k is a type of retirement plan that your employer has to offer. So unfortunately, you know, if you work at an employer who doesn't offer it, it's just simply not available to you. If that's the case, you can still, you know, uh, contribute to an IRA and as well as there might be other sorts of retirement plans available, particularly maybe in the public sector, which I'm personally too familiar with in, but 401k is sort of the more common retirement plan that most certainly I'd I'd say for-profit companies or public companies um, offer. And it allows you to put money aside either on a tax, either pre-tax or post-tax basis, depending on your choice and depending on what the plan offers. Yeah, that you can withdraw at, at retirement age and have a lot of special tax benefits. I think one of the unique and special things about it compared to other types of retirement plans is typically the amount that you can contribute is is quite a bit larger. For instance, I think in 2022, the amount that you can contribute as an individual is about 20500 yep. versus maybe an IRA is about $6,000. So, you know, almost three to four times that amount. And so it's it's kind of the largest amount that you can contribute, So which is, I think that's, that's pretty impactful. And for some people, I think, you know, that, you know, their 401k could be sufficient sort of for what your, depending on what your kind of goals are for retirement. And then the other thing is, is depending on your income, for instance, if your income is is high above certain sort of thresholds, you may not be able to contribute directly to a, a Roth IRA, as well as you may not be able to take a tax deduction if you were a, if you were to contribute to a, a traditional IRA. But you, as far as I know, at, at any income level, you can always you know contribute to a a four one k, and if you choose to do that on a pre tax basis, you essentially just reduce your taxable income, and then obviously if you you can choose to contribute on a kind of after tax basis, which has different benefits, but that it basically doesn't matter what income level you have. So I think those are those are two special things, really, the amount that you can contribute, as well as the availability of taking getting the tax benefits regardless of your income type, is what makes four one k's pretty special. Yeah, hundred percent agree. It's it's a great great vehicle. Couple of notes about some of the things you mentioned. Uh, if you are self employed, you can potentially look at a solo four hundred one k, which is basically just setting up your own four hundred one k if you're the only person at the, at the company, which may or may not be better than a, a SEP IRA. Uh, it might be an 
another topic that we could potentially go into. Yeah, other other types of 401k equivalents. Uh, 403b is a very popular one in the government nonprofit space. And there's a bunch of other types that kind of operate similarly to 401k and, and do effectively the same thing. Uh, 401a is kind of mandatory contributions by an employer and, and an employee. And then a, a 457 can allow you to do some pre-tax stuff as well. So anyways, yeah, I think by and large, everybody sort of understands or has heard of the term 401k obviously by the uh the code section that it's in reference to if you are over the age of 50 you can make a catch-up contribution depending on the year we're talking about six seven thousand dollars extra on top of the twenty thousand five hundred so and then the limits that we're referring to aren't necessarily talking about employee employer match, which can go above and beyond. It's not like a combined. Sometimes I get questions about that, but yeah, it's, it's exclusively your contribution, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a very versatile a vehicle, and uh, yeah, matches can be pretty dynamic from one company to the next, especially in the tech industry. Yeah, yeah. So depending on your company, you know, it's it's companies may offer what's called matching, where they might match a uh, a certain percentage of every dollar you contribute up to some particular sort of limit. So maybe an example is sometimes an employer might match, uh, let's say, like fifty percent of the dollars you put in up to I don't know five percent of your salary or something like that. So if you you know if you let's say let's say you make a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know. I think it's something like you can contribute $5,000 and they would contribute then half of that $2,500. So yeah, sometimes there's a lot of incentives to to contribute. And that's kind of like, you're not, you're not going to get, usually you're not going to get any sort of like interest or investment return as guaranteed and as high as that anywhere else. So if, if a company does provide a match, I think you should like almost always take advantage of that before other types of accounts but you know certainly it is a, it is a retirement account and so with that is it's being intended for retirement there are certain strings attached in terms of how you can take money out of that and stuff so you know it's not probably not something where you should contribute money to if you need money in the in like you know you're saving for a house or something like that or some near term goal where you need to have access to the cash so there are some circumstances where you probably don't want to but you know for retirement planning it's definitely one of the best places to to do that so you know at a high level right if you you can contribute on a pre-tax basis which would just reduce your taxable income essentially so again if you let's say your, your gross income is maybe one hundred thousand dollars and you decide to contribute twenty thousand dollars your taxable income would just simply be eighty thousand uh, dollars obviously that's even before any of the other kind of deductions and stuff that you would have um and the other choice is that you can, and then obviously what happens is because you didn't pay tax on it when you contribute it, you would then pay tax on it when you withdrew it in the future. And so, you know, depending that you would pay tax on it, depending on whatever your sort of, uh, you know, tax income tax bracket would be at that time. Um, and then alternatively, you can contribute. Usually most plans now have a Roth 401k option where you can contribute post-tax dollars, so ta dollars that you've already paid tax on. And then similarly, like a Roth IRA, when you withdrew that in the future, you since you've already paid tax on it, you you don't need to pay tax on it. So do you want to maybe tell us about like, how would you recommend people kind of make a little bit to make the decision? I think it's somewhat similarly to how they might decide with an IRA. But uh, yeah, maybe you want to just give us an overview of how do you decide between contributing on a pre-tax versus post-tax basis and if there's any nuances between a 401k and an IRA when making that decision? Yeah, good, good question. I think, uh, I think with 
I think the the biggest point that you mentioned early on was the fact that you there's no income requirement for pre-tax deductions to your uh, uh, contributions to the 401k, which is fantastic. And so I, I tend to be, well, so so the simple framework, and I, we might have touched on this. I was kind of trying to look back at my notes where where we touched on this before, Roth versus traditional, which one should you do? But uh, typically speaking, I'm looking at, okay, are you in your peak earning years? And that can be hard to, to gauge for sure, depending on what type of work you're doing. But uh, maybe just comparing where you were a year ago or a couple of years ago or whatever it may be. Uh, if you're, let's say, maybe you started this job halfway through the year or, and you didn't have any employment before or didn't have any income before, it could be a good year to do Roth uh, just because your income tax is going to be a little lower because you're a different tax bracket, lower tax bracket than you might normally be. But if you are in peak earning years, then it makes a lot of sense to contribute to a, a pre-tax 401k. Worth also pointing out, so for traditional IRAs and for, well, virtually any pre-tax account, retirement account, you're going to, uh, at age 72 is currently what is the law and may, may change, who knows, uh, changed a, a couple of years ago from 70 and a half. Uh, that is when the government wants their money and what is known as required minimum distributions are are required. So what does that really mean? So, you know, if you're getting a tax benefit today, in the future, uh, the government doesn't want these sort of endless tax shelter accounts. At some point, they want their money, their tax money. And so they require people to start pulling their money at this age 72, according to actuarial tables. And in some cases, you may also have to do so if you inherit an IRA as well. So a pre-tax IRA. This doesn't apply to Roth because the Roth, the taxes have already been paid. And so that's not that big of a problem. Um, why am I bringing that up? Well, first off, it's just good to know. But second off, it's important too that what happens is, let's say you continue to contribute pre-tax over the years and you come you know, at age 72, you're required to start putting, taking money out and it's a percentage. So the more money you have in there, of course, potentially the higher tax brackets you can start to elevate. There becomes a period of time that for some people, they don't necessarily work all the way and earn the same amount of money that they have been in their peak earning years until 72. There could be a perfect opportunity to do what's known as Roth conversions. And why am I bringing this up? Again, it all relates back to should you contribute pre-tax or should you contribute post-tax? It's not just the tax bracket, but just kind of looking overall or kind of holistically of, of your potentially your taxable income over time. So the Roth conversions can be done. Let's say you ended up retiring at, let's say, 65 or heck, even 67, which is the full retirement age for Social Security. You you start, you still have those five years that you're able to contribute or convert dollars from your pre-tax account to your post-tax account. So you're willingly paying the tax on that. There's no like sort of restriction. You can pay the tax at any time. So you're basically being able to target the tax that you're paying. And and again, most people aren't necessarily at an elevated uh, income level all the way through to 72. So anyways, I tend, because of all of that, that lengthy answer to that question, I tend to favor pre-tax accounts uh, for 401ks maybe a little sooner than I may in a Roth or backdoor Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so basically you're saying like, because of maybe your your ability to potentially sort of maybe not necessarily influence your tax bracket, but kind of choose when you might want to pay that tax on those withdrawals by doing things like Roth conversions, you can kind of optimize your overall sort of yeah, amount of tax that you pay on, on those dollars. Yep. Yep. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah that makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and there was a couple of other things I wanted to mention too, just going back to the previous point. For for those who are looking at, at the matching contributions, um, I have not run into any scenario where a company is putting in after-tax dollars. The reason that they, they one of the reasons other than retention, I think, and, and, and rewarding employees is getting a deduction on their end for the dollars that they're putting into your 401k. So that's coming in a pre-tax form. So even if you're contributing Roth dollars, after-tax dollars, the company's match will likely be, uh, you know, I use that kind of hedge lightly, mm. but I would say I have not run into a scenario looking at a lot, a lot of companies, a lot of clients that they're, they're, they're post-tax contributions. Got um, it. Yeah, I guess I, I can't say. I don't know because I've actually only ever contributed pre-tax and then we can talk later about you can contribute not Roth 401k dollars, but after-tax dollars. Above but beyond. We, yeah, maybe yeah. we can talk about that towards the end. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that's good to know. And so a couple things uh, worth you know mentioning. Uh, if you're in tech, most likely your employer's matching contributions will be vested immediately. So you don't have to worry about this. But mm. for, it's surprising to say that a lot of other companies, big and small, also have a vesting schedule mm. on when their comp- company's contributions will be vested in full, uh, which is crazy. I think I've shared in the past, too, on the podcast that Sorry, Vanguard, but uh, mm. they had like a six-year investing schedule for the matching contributions, which is like back in the That's day, you know, like, time. hey, it's a golden little carrot, gold mm-hmm. handcuffs, stay around. It's, it's yeah, it's... So obviously in tech, they do have RSUs and equity comp, but but uh, yeah, that, that's worth at least knowing because sure. let's say you're at a job that you're not planning to stay at for very long, if at all, that long at all. So they don't have any matching contributions. So maybe that's one small reason why, you know, or if you're, you know, dad or have other uses for those dollars in, in the short term and need them, you may not necessarily contribute. But I think by and large, that applies to a lot of a lot of people who plan to be around and, and again, don't have that vesting schedule requirement. Do those vesting schedules typically mean like it doesn't vest at all until that six years or, or to, you know, invest, does it vest like a sixth every year sort of thing? Like, do you kind of lose it all sort of if you like, do you have to wait six years for every contribution for you can get any of it? Or how does that work? No, it's, I'm it's, sure it depends. But yeah, yeah, it depends. Just like vesting schedules for all sorts of other equity comp, but it can be a cliffs where you mm-hmm. stay. In, I mean, I, I haven't seen this, but I'm sure they're out there. But like you stay and work for three years. And as long as you hit the three year time of, of service in the company, then you're, you've got a hundred percent anything thereafter, even though you're, they're, you know, matching contributions or, you know, rolling over every year and so forth uh, will stand. So, but yeah, others it's like, okay, uh, 33% for over three years or 25% or 20% or zero and then 20%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So got it. that's kind of interesting, a little quirk that maybe people should look out for. Uh, the other thing too, and again, this may not apply to a broad spectrum of folks, but just worth mentioning for my clients who are, or folks in general who are international and maybe non-residents and don't anticipate to be in the States for too long, if at all, there can be times, depending on how how good the match is, even with really, I mean, there, there's definitely a, enough money that a company will match that's like, hey, even though you're not planning to be here that much, that's a lot of money. Like you said, it's hard to... How do you guarantee a rate of return? And that that's one way of doing it, getting that match. So 
but but again there can be the circumstances where it may not make sense to contribute to 401k just because it's a, a real pain to have to move that or take the tax hit so sometimes you have to run the numbers a little bit on that right i mean typically like for instance if you want to withdraw i don't know like funds from a 401k and you're not at retirement age and it's not maybe a qualified sort of expense. I know there's a few instances where maybe you can take out money for, I mean, besides, you know, if you're withdrawing pre-tax dollars, obviously besides paying tax on it, isn't it, don't you just pay a 10% penalty or something like that? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So before 59 and a half, you take the money out. It's not, as you say, one of the qualifying exceptions, then it'll be a 10% penalty plus ordinary income if it's a pre-tax. Right. So, I mean, that could, you know, I think you have to do the math, but I think if you're getting a match at 50% of the dollars that you put in, right? Like if you, you know, if you put in $2,000 and then you get a $1,000 match, then that's $3,000. Even if you have to then pay a 10%, you know, penalty on that, you're still, you know, you're that's $300 in penalties. You're, you know, you're still getting plus $700 essentially mm -hmm. to pay tax. So, that, you know, I think there can, it's not, I'd say like, penalty sounds bad like you should always avoid it but i think you should just really understand what it is and i think there are plenty of scenarios where it makes sense to contribute to a 401k even if you actually need the money sooner right like if you don't if you don't anticipate leaving it there till you're 59 and a half or whatever retirement age is yeah yeah yep. so i'm just bringing up a couple of cases where it may not be as sure. straightforward and cut and dry but for i think for the vast majority of starting out with even if you owe a bunch of money to at least get the match, I think is makes a lot of sense. And then the question after that is if you've got surplus dollars, should you continue to con should you contribute the maximum or some gradient there versus contributing to a, say a brokerage account or just saving your cash and high savings or equivalent? Yeah, so. we talked about that a little bit. I think it was episode eight, selecting accounts for investment, which you talked about the different types of account and how you might go about, yeah, choosing one or the other. Um, so I would definitely encourage listeners to to listen to that one if they want to kind of look, think through what are the considerations of how to pick which accounts to to contribute to and what order and, you know. Yeah, definitely worth a listen. Uh, Another, I guess what we're doing, plugs, another good one is our episode six, which is uh, passive investing. Anything else mechanics, but I, I'd love to, to move towards. Yeah, let's uh, talk investing. about investments. Like yeah. how do people decide what investments to pick in there? And, you know, maybe you can talk about some of the kind of limitations of 401ks maybe also that come with that compared to maybe if you were to open up a, a Roth IRA kind of directly at a, at a broker. Yeah, it, so with most 401ks, you're, limited to a specific subset of investments. Maybe it's 20 to 30 different funds. The reason for that is oftentimes the 401k is the first foray into the investing world for a good majority of people. And so they don't want to overwhelm you with a number of different options that you may be able to uh, have access to at say uh, any other broker, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, etc. And so yeah. And so the, what they try to do in the selection process, having been on the other side of that, is to try to give broad funds that maybe do, they fit in certain categories. 
So maybe they'll have a, a large cap fund or they're investing in maybe the U.S. large cap fund where it's just big companies in the U.S. Maybe a mid cap fund, which is medium sized companies in the U.S. Or, you know, you get the picture here or, or a bond fund or an international fund. And so they might just have a handful in each one of these categories, which depending on how good that provider or you know, plan sponsor does can be a great thing or it can be a very difficult thing to try to mimic what you're doing in your investing to somewhere else. There can be some really bad ones. Have you, in your career, have you encountered some pretty bad 401k lineups or they've all been pretty decent? Uh, yes, I think like the, let's see. Yeah, I think of the companies that I've worked that offer 401ks, I think uh, one of them, the, the first 401k they offered was, uh, I think it had, had a good kind of variety of fun choices, but they were just, had very high fees, uh, you know, like point zero point seven percent or something for like an basically like a total stock market fund or something that I, I don't think they called it that. I remember it being quite high. Fortunately, the other I think during when I worked there, they actually did switch providers to a, to a different provider. I want to say it was Fidelity. I don't remember exactly. I think they switched to Fidelity, and they, they offer much lower cost. So yeah, I think it really kind of depends on who the provider is. I think you know, I think it's better now than even five years ago, where I think there used to be a lot of cost associated with setting up a 401k plan. And I think one of the ways that companies were able to sort of mitigate those costs were to select a plan provider that I think they typically charged low kind of administrative fees to the company themselves. But to kind of make up for that, they would typically, it feels like they would offer only investments that had high expense ratios and they'd get some sort of kickback from either the funds themselves or something like that. So if it was like a way to make the yeah, the 401k plan attractive and, and, you know, kind of competitively priced for, for small companies. But now I think there's just more 401k administers, administrators, or I think you call them plan sponsors, maybe that are accessible to smaller companies so that smaller companies can get access to, you know, pretty decent, both, you know, selection as well as pricing for, for funds and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, personally, I don't, and I'm curious to hear your thought on it. Like, I think, yeah, fees matter. However, you know, I, I think it's attributing to a 401k has so many other benefits. I think, uh, I think paying a higher fee in a 401k, if, if that's the only choice that you have, is still probably worth doing. We're talking about maybe like, for instance, you know, if you were to go directly to in your Roth IRA, you might get something like, you know, 0.05% versus, yeah, maybe you might have to pay almost 10 times that or something in a, in a, in a bad 401k investment. Mm. And, you know, we're talking, it seems 10, 10 times a lot, 10 times more seems like a lot. And it is, but I think something to think about too, is, you know, you're not necessarily going to be in those funds forever. It's probably for as only as long as you're working at that company. Right. And so I think part thinking about that and, you know, knowing that when you leave the company, you can typically you know, you can absolutely like move those funds over to your new company's 401k, or, you know, you can roll it over to an IRA. So it's not something that you're kind of stuck with forever. And so I tend to kind of think that it's still worth contributing to the 401k to get all the other tax benefits, even if you're paying kind of elevated fees in the short term. But curious to hear what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I think it, going back to hypothesizing of why they might be charging so high fees, uh, uh, 
it's just certain providers are sort of known in the industry for that. And I, you know, again, insider's view, a lot of times the 401k offering at a broker is really a loss leader because they're just gaining access to the executive team and trying to pitch them on wealth management services that are much higher revenue source for them. And so they'll come in and do, you know, Hey, let's, let's, you know, once I have your 401k, you know, that's a little bit more of a sticky relationship and yeah, it's kind of kind of crazy how that works. And, and they'll just sort of, fortunately, I mean, some of them are great where they've got folks that are educating the participants and helping them out with their selection and, you know, answering questions and so forth. But uh, some of them just do the bare minimum to, to get that. Um, others invest heavily, uh, quote unquote. Yeah. It's funny. Cause that's probably the biggest gripe that I get from, from clients is just how terrible the, the user experience and user interfaces at their 401k. That seems like pretty, pretty universal. Even with the ones that actually have made quite made a lot of mm-hmm. strides in investment there. Like Fidelity, I mean, I've, I've worked with that plan, that those that design for so long that it seems intuitive, but but yeah, it's it's definitely not as intuitive as some of these other apps that have have worked really closely with with the UI team and, and yeah, all that stuff. So um, yeah, and so with regard to the other question on should you invest in in even high cost funds. Yeah, I tend to agree, you know, it depends on what, you know, what are you trying to mimic? Again, at this podcast, we really like passive investing where you are basically buying low cost, heavily diversified ETFs or mutual funds. Oftentimes you're going to find mutual funds in the 401ks and sometimes they'll have different uh, fee expense ratios because they're in 401ks and oftentimes those are lower because there's just more dollars in 401ks than individual accounts. So, uh yeah, in some cases, if it's really egregious, I will recommend maybe we just get exposure to an S&P 500 equivalent fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we should talk about like, how do we even identify those in the first place? But maybe we just do that. And then maybe we have international somewhere else or go a little bit heavier of an allocation in international somewhere else. Depending on how your breakdown of funds, it can be harder to do. Or if that's the only selection, then maybe you... Maybe you should go with more diversified line lineup there. Uh, oh, one thing before I want to turn it over back to you, Lauren, on that selecting funds, but there's also a very classically a target date retirement fund, and I want to say like I don't shoot, I mean, 99 plus percentage of. 401ks that I've come across will have some level of target date retirement fund. Quickly, a quick overview there. So basically, it is a target date, meaning oh, there, um, you know, your uh, supposed age 65, and they in fact each plan typically also has a qualified default investment alternative where you know if you. And sometimes they even have automatic enrollment. So you first join and they like automatically enroll you to this plan. And and then sometimes they even have auto escalation where they'll like move up the contribution every year by a certain threshold. You can obviously opt out, but they have found that people are more likely to just do nothing than, than proactively make a choice. So anyways, the qualified, usually the, the default investment is a retirement, target day retirement fund, which basically just is a year and it dials down the risk level as you get closer and closer to that year at your respective age 65. So those can be good and it can be bad depending on cost and what they're trying to do. Yeah. You know, actually I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that is something where I think in all of this, you know, we talk about 
we, we 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 naturally try to tend to talk about how to optimize thing taxes how to make the best possible decision right but at the end of the day you know making contributions are like that has the biggest impact and i think it can be easy for people to to feel overwhelmed and and just not contribute because they don't know what to select for instance so if you feel that way i, I absolutely agree like pick your closest guest for retirement age and and select that one to start and then start contributing to it and then you know the beauty of a a retirement account or a tax sheltered account is that you can always make changes uh later to not not just for your future contributions but to your existing contributions so let's say you've you know you've contributed twenty thousand dollars and it's in some target date fund if you decide oh i've you know i've i understand more i've done my research or i've talked to someone or a financial planner like i want to move this into a you know just an ssp 500 fund or total stock market fund you can just log in and just make a trade essentially or change your investment and there's no cost almost always no cost to that and um, it's not a taxable event so you can always make changes later so i think it's definitely like if you feel kind of overwhelmed just yeah i totally agree pick a target date retirement fund and, and go from there um but yeah i mean if, if you kind of already uh are looking to go one step further i think really the the three kind of asset classes that we tend to kind of focus on for passive investing really is right. It's like total stock market fund and or an S&P 500, which is pretty similar. It's just maybe the 500 largest companies versus like the largest 3000 companies, but they tend to really perform the same. Um, so you have the, that fund, maybe an international fund and then a bond fund. So almost any 401k should have the, some form of those three, um, I mean, especially like a total stock market or S and P five hundred fund. Like, if you can't find it, or you know, like you should really talk to the your HR person and really, or the plan administrator, and really advocate for getting that because that's the, that's what I think you know is kind of the, the basic thing that should comprise of the majority of someone's portfolio, right? And and when you when you get a target date fund, it typically is majority of some sort of kind of yeah, total stock market fund like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we could talk a little bit about how do you identify those things? You know, typically there is some sort of, you know, sheet or, or, or plan document that lists all the funds with just descriptions. I mean, you might have to go into each one's prospectus, but you know, there usually is some sort of kind of directory of all the funds and um yeah sometimes they're categorized by sort of like you said by some sort of category or um, asset class and they should also tell you how what are, what are the fees of the fund as well um so you should definitely be aware of of that but yeah curious to hear if there's anything more that you think uh listeners can can do to kind of figure out which which one to invest in or, or yeah. to determine what's what yeah, yeah. I think um, it, it, for those who are just starting out on their journey and uh, maybe they they've, are poking in there and maybe they have their money in a, uh, a target date retirement fund, uh, oftentimes the people first look at, they'll, they'll show you the performance, they'll go through this list and they'll kind of look to see, okay, I've got the, the one year, the three year, the oh, five yeah, the year, performance, yeah. the performance. And then you also have the Morningstar ratings on, on most of those as well that show you, oh, hey, this is three stars or four stars or five stars or whatever. Um, you know, most of the time they'll just like, hey, well, look, this one did the best out of all of these. I need to just put up all my money there or or maybe I'll pick the top three and, and that can potentially lead you to not necessarily getting a fully diversified portfolio and, and kind of chasing performance. So I would caution uh, 
looking exclusively at performance and looking exclusively at Morningstar ratings. Um, there's sort of this Morningstar curse that if you, you know, throw your money and follow the, the, the five star that, uh, you know, the following year and, and, you know, they may not perform as high and, and, uh, maybe underperform relative to somebody else. So, uh, classically chasing performance. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to look at, uh, the asset classes first, um, you know, how much should you have in, in one versus another? Uh, that's a good one. I mean, it's sort of kidding into recommendations about what, what everybody should do. But I think it depends on how old you are and how close to retirement you are. Um, if you look, yeah, I, again, I, I don't know how, how in-depth we'll go into this. But, you know, if you just look at the market capitalization of the U.S., which is basically, you know, how much is how much money is in the U.S. companies versus how much money is in international companies, I want to say uh, it's right around 40%. Um, and so if you were to execute the passive investing strategy to the T, you'd basically invest market-weighted, in uh, the U.S. versus international, and so that would say that you're putting 40% in the U.S. That's not the case. Uh, I'd say virtually, you know, again, I'm making this stat up, but like 70% of people have got like over 90% of their uh, U.S. stock, I'm sorry, their stock investment in, in US the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I would, you know, it doesn't have to be the uh, a, a, a crazy amount invested in international, but um, I'll just give you a rough range, maybe 20, anywhere from 20 of your US, of your, sorry, of your stock holdings, consider putting anywhere from 20 to 40% in the international stocks. 40% is high, 20% is you know, not, not too crazy, but it's something meaningful. What yeah. do you think about that? I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's, this is like another kind of optimization. I think it's it's nice to have, I think, you could also just do without any international and be fine too. But I think, yeah, 20 to 40 is kind of in line with what, with what I do as well. Um, but yeah, I think you can kind of go either way. I guess one, one thing I was going to touch on was like, yeah, how do you actually kind of find out what each fund is doing? Cause yeah. one thing I noticed about 401k funds is that oftentimes you like, it's not the ticker symbol is not really the same thing you might find in a Roth IRA. There's sometimes there's like different share classes and sometimes you can kind of Google the ticker symbol to get more information as well. But, you know, certainly like the prospectus that you should be, should be available from the fund provider. um, You know, we'll say something like this tracks, if it's an index fund, which that's really what you should be focusing on is it'll track some uh, benchmark and it'll be like, the Russell 2000, I'm probably making that up, some sort of benchmark, which is some sort of index that some company kind of creates, but really it, you know, follows like 2000 largest funds. It's like that type of thing is kind of how you can kind of figure out what is it trying to do. Um, and then, you know, it should be, should be tracking some sort of index, I think, right? Because if it's not doing that, then it's probably some actively managed fund that, there is just some person who is just making all these decisions, whereas an index really has some sort of kind of formula that determines which funds are in it. And it just um, does this automatically, which, you know, generally, you know, leads to um, better diversification, less turnover in it, in it, which I guess probably doesn't matter so much when it's in a, um, a tax sheltered account. But so, yeah, obviously some of the major indexes are like the S&P 500 and, I don't know if you know any of the other kind of uh, major indices across the different types of asset classes that people might 
mm-hmm. recognize or the see. NASDAQ, the Russell mm-hmm. 3000, 1000, yeah. 2000, um, the FTSE, um, Morgan Stanley, MSCI, uh, that's more international, the FTSE's international. Uh, there's all sorts of, of different indices out there, and sometimes the people make up their own. Um, it, it just just uh, zooming out real quick to prospectus is, is, is a legal sort of document uh, that the SEC requires that uh, fund uh, companies put together that basically just states what is the goal of the fund. Um, they'll have a summary prospectus that is these legal documents, of course, are, you know, can be like tens of hundreds of pages. Um, and it can be kind of cumbersome to, to look through. And so they've got these summary prospectus, which may be one to three pages or something like that, that give you a quick idea. What's the objective of the fund? And in that objective, it should tell you uh, what they're trying to do. And, and um, you know, like Lauren's saying, it's, it's one that's, um, you know, you it, it would specifically call out an index if it's mimicking one or if they're trying to actively pick funds and and so forth. Another a big tell is the expense ratio. And so those that are on the lower end, so when I say lower end, maybe 0.2 mm. and below, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, around that, 0.2% uh, annually is the amount of money they're taking, the fund manager's fee. Um, anything above that? Generally speaking, I've seen some index funds at some of these other uh, uh, higher cost uh, institutions running at 30, uh, 0.35, 35 basis yeah. points, uh, which is crazy to me. I've even seen them at 0.5 when they're claiming their index funds. It's just like yeah. ludicrous. But I think that, that is a good tip, though. I think, yeah, right. Because I think an actively managed fund typically has one or more per people that, are, that make these decisions and have to get paid for doing whatever they do. And so, whereas an index fund, you know, it's pretty much automated. So they, they can offer it at also at a lower cost, but like I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will, but I do think that it's a good, that it's a good first kind of glance. Cause that's something you can kind of look at pretty quickly and see. Um, yeah. C- compare the, the cost of each fund. Yeah. And so as we're talking about optimization, you know, uh, you know, again, some people just look at the face value and and they'll say Morningstar performance, but we're talking about, okay, you've got the asset class and then maybe there's a fact sheet or you can click a link on the fund itself in that, that portal that you've got um, and you see the objective and then you see this, this index, maybe you don't know what this index is another layer, which is just like copy, paste into Google, which mm-hmm. you know, 99% of yeah. jobs, right? And then you just kind of read, like <laughs> the first hit is like, hey, this is what this is doing. Oh, it's the biggest 3,000, the Russell 3,000, the biggest 3,000 companies in the US. Okay, great. So that's like kind of like more like a, a total stock market. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they say it on there like, oh, this is the Dow Jones total stock market index or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, that could be another way to try to get to that. And and it doesn't have to be you've got to select ten or twenty mm. of the thirty funds. Like don't mistake uh amount of funds for diversification, although you may, you know, finally get there, but you may just be getting a bunch of mid cap funds and not necessarily getting the, the full diversification that you need. So um yeah, I think that's anything else on. I mean, th- there's a number of, of Q and A items that I want to hit mm. as well. Yeah, um, that may sure. or may not pertain to inter- uh, investment selection, but yeah, I, th- I think we we did a, a pretty good job touching on that. Um, well, maybe one. Here's one that I'm gonna throw at you. Um, oh, my my company offers a brokerage link. Uh, is it worth it? So. 
yeah, maybe just talk about what a brokerage is. Yeah. So actually, it's, it's I think good. It's a good segue from or uh, what we were just talking about, which is um, I, I feel like brokerage link is probably some brand name of maybe Fidelity or I something think it's a like Fidelity. that. Yep. But um, yeah, some four hundred one k plans allow you to essentially move the 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 balance or the funds from your four hundred one k to a like a separate account or a different account that is still sort of within the 401k, but, but then provides you sort of all of the investment options that that brokerage has. So I guess this is probably, yeah, I guess like at Fidelity, for instance, if, if your 401k is at Fidelity, yeah, you might get the 20 or 30 funds that both Fidelity and your company kind of determine are the, the, the right menu for your for the employees but if you avail of this brokerage link option i think you can have many you know hundreds maybe not maybe even thousands of choices and presumably also some of the same investments are you know funds that you could um contribute to if you were you know opening a if you had a 401 excuse me an ira directly or a you know a brokerage account directly with fidelity so it gives you a lot more options um and then typically you would pay whatever kind of expense ratios of those funds so it could be could be lower for the expense ratio of the funds um but you just have to really kind of look at the details of it i've personally never used it um so i can't really say but there you know there may be some fees i think there are sometimes some inconveniences or some limitations about you know, we talk about some if you make a pre-tax contribution or a post-tax or even you can make some or a, a Roth 401k contribution or potentially after tax. It seems like you think you had mentioned maybe that um, only some balances could be moved to a brokerage link or I don't know if maybe I made that up. But yeah, maybe you can probably tell me more. You probably have more experience or um, with with brokerage link. Yeah, yeah. So this is really just largely created uh, as a, you know, again, even though the 401ks maybe not be the huge revenue generators for these financial institutions, they're still, um, you know, everybody's vying to, to get these big, big companies on their platform. So, um, you know, if, if a lot of participants are, are, are not uh, happy about, oh, they don't have this fund or that fund. So this is really just a creation by the, you know, them to um, open and open this up. Um, and so, yeah, there are there can be some requirements around there. Um, for example, you can only have up to like ninety five percent of your account balance in mm. the brokerage link. Mm -hmm. And so, um, when you go and say you're trying to do some rebalancing, which uh, we'll get to, but uh, when you want to say make some some changes to your investment lineup, um, it can be hard to to sort of account from a logistical standpoint. Okay, if I've only got five percent, what's that five percent in? And then I still have like the way it's displayed oh it looks like it's a hundred percent on the brokerage link but it's really only 95 percent so like how should you think about it so it can be a little challenging there um you know like you said there can be some fees not all companies have fees associated with this but some of them do um you know maybe it's a, a quarterly fee or an annual fee something like that um just something to be aware of but but yeah it, it gives it gives you access like you said to a bunch of different uh, investments you may otherwise not be able to um which can which could could make sense if you've got uh say maybe you're missing a critical asset class uh maybe it's international or maybe you want some exposure to emerging markets um you know sometimes that that could be a little lesser known um and and, and maybe there's it's bonds or maybe the bond funds that they have access to are just not that good or expensive or a whole host of reasons but yeah that brokerage link is um uh, potentially a good option to, to consider um, yeah yeah that makes sense 
But I will say just to make your life easier if you're more on that side rather than, you know, but we've got easiness on one side of the spectrum, optimization on the other side. And so, yeah, keeping it in the main core 20 to 30 probably makes a sense makes sense for a lot of people. Yeah. So all right, I got the next one. What what um what if your employer offers after tax contributions to a 401k? What what are after tax contributions? How are they different than Roth 401k contributions and pre-tax contributions? And, and why and why would you want to contribute after tax dollars? Yeah, good one. Um, so after tax contributions, or sometimes referred to as a mega backdoor Roth, uh, is another way to put more money into a 401k. Not every plan has uh, this. Um, but if we return back to our limits, uh, we're recording in the tail end here of 2022, and this will come out, you know, 20, let's be, maybe I'll just use 23's numbers. So 2023, you're able to contribute $22,500 into a 401k as an employee, um, that is not including, uh, uh, your, uh, company's match the company's match is above and beyond that there is a number that um and i'm gonna get this wrong but um there is a total amount that you're able to contribute to a 401k in general including the employee and then match employer um and i want to say it's sixty six thousand. yeah sixty six thousand in 2023 or there's a lot here. So, or 73,500 if you are over 50. So, if mm-hmm. you're over 50, you're able to contribute more. Um, uh, what is that? $7,500 extra? Yeah. Yeah. So, this is kind of like, yeah, I think it's kind of confusing, right? Because there's a 22,500 is the employee limit. Mm-hmm. And then an employer can contribute. I guess there's no limit. I, obviously, the total he said is what did you say? Sixty-five. Sixty-six thousand in twenty twenty-three. Sixty-six thousand. Yeah. So, how do you get the sixty-six thousand dollars? I guess it's through this after-tax contribution. So there's like it's like a separate method that you can contribute that is not subject to the twenty-two thousand five hundred. Yeah. So let's say um, let's just use some some numbers here like let's say that you work at a tech company and your company matches 50 percent of your contributions and you're going to max things out so um i know this is audio so bear with me but you've got sixty six you're putting in twenty two thousand five hundred. um your company matches eleven thousand two fifty, which is half of the twenty two thousand five hundred. we add those two up and we subtract them from sixty six thousand. that allows you if you do have access to this after-tax contribution uh to make a contribution of thirty two thousand two hundred and fifty of to to max out your limit let's say you're under 50 so that extra amount doesn't apply to you so um and as the name says you're putting in a contribution that is after tax um and so yeah obviously there's no choice there it has to be after tax um but what a lot of these plans and hopefully all of them do is have access to a um an in-plan conversion from the after tax so you've got these uh potentially three buckets the pre-tax the post-tax and then the after tax um and so 
what is this in-plan conversion that I'm talking about? Well, it allows the money that you've got that you contributed after tax. Let's say you did put that $32,250. Um, if you were to just leave it in that bucket, um, well, that I mean, that's not be ideal good. because <laughs> you've got this money that's growing. And um, when you pull out, so the earnings on that money would be taxable. Right. Just uh, like a brokerage account, right? Just like a Roth account. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Or just yeah, like a brokerage, brokerage account. Brokerage, yeah, yeah just, just like a normal taxable account, right? You, you exactly. pay the, the, any withdrawals of, of earnings would be, or, you know, capital gains is taxable. Um, yeah. Yeah, or, or non-deductible traditional IRA contribution. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it's in this sort of no man's land where you would want to move that money into a Roth so that that money, that after-tax money, can grow tax-free. Um and, and not have to worry about that. So, um, yeah, so so that's an important step for those who do want to execute on this strategy. Um, I think one part of that question was, why would you want to do this in the first place? Well, this is a great way, again, to put more money into the 401k and, um, yeah, and, and not have to worry about income limits or, um, and again, that's, that's quite a sizable amount of money that you're able to put in there. So um, it's really for those who are really trying to charge hard towards retirement or catch up or just have surplus dollars that they have that they want to optimize. So, yeah, I think what's special about it too is that it's it's also contributing. Well, yeah, I guess um, I was going to say it's you contribute. You're able to contribute more to a a Roth. I guess is what it is. Um, and so, yeah, you pay tax on it now, but you don't pay any tax on it when you withdraw. Um, and yeah, as long as you do that conversion fairly regularly, like you know that conversion is 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 taxable. The, the, any growth in earnings is taxable but if you you know if you're able to make that conversion essentially every time you contribute there's hardly any earnings and some 401k providers will allow you to sort of like set, set it up so it will automatically do it you know every two weeks or every after every paycheck essentially so there's not this pretty insignificant amount of earnings um so yeah i mean that you know think about the obviously you can contribute a significantly more to your 401k so from you know maybe twenty thousand dollars up to you know whatever, $50,000, you know, 55, I guess it depends on how, what your employer matches. So that's a big difference. And then also, if you think about the uh, amount that you're able to contribute to a Roth account, you know, um, you know, you could might be able to contribute $6,000, uh, you know, maybe directly if your income allows it, or, you know, maybe through a, a backdoor Roth, which is kind of similar. It's like contributing to a deduct non-deductible, IRA and then same idea where you convert it to a Roth, but so instead of only contributing $6,000 um, and or, you know, the amount that you can contribute to your 401k as an employee, you can contribute significantly more to this after tax. So it is a pretty um, great benefit if if your employer and 401k plan allows it. So I think it's something to to look out for. And if you have, you know, I think it's, it can be a compelling thing to, to do. Uh, like if you have, uh, you know, excess money and you're considering, you know, like putting money in a taxable account, um, this could be something to do that might, might that you should consider. Um, obviously, though, it still is in a 401k typically. So there's obviously limitations in terms of accessibility. Um, but it's only really until you potentially leave the company, because I think when you leave the company, you can, you know, you can roll over your Roth 401k to just a normal Roth IRA. 
and like a Roth IRA, I think, well, actually, you know, I'm still a little, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I really understand all the nuances. I, you and I exchanged some pretty long emails about this many years ago about the rules here. And I don't know if we want to dive into that. Maybe we can link a, a Kitz's article about this and there's all these like five-year conversion rules, but, um, yeah, it, it, it's, I think you can I always still, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you can still always withdraw contributions. Um, once that money is in a Roth IRA, it's just a question of when you can withdraw the earnings. But yeah, I don't know if you uh, want to touch on it briefly without getting, yeah, get, without get, getting <laughs> sucked down a rabbit hole. I think I don't want to get sucked down a rabbit hole, yeah. but yeah, it's important. There's some other rules that you got to be mindful of the five years so that the five years mm -hmm. can be, um, can, can only start when the conversion happens on the earnings. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah. That might be some another topic for another time, um, but yeah. O overall, the, the Mega Backdoor Roth is, is really cool, and it's starting to get more popularity, um, particularly in the tech uh, sector. So, um, I had two questions. I know we're starting to run a little long here, but I two additional questions I wanted to shoehorn in here, and, and maybe we can call it. But uh, how often should I rebalance slash check in on my investments? Hmm, good question. I mean, I don't. I don't... I'm curious if you think there's something different about a 401k versus everything. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, once a year is probably fine for most people, to be honest. I don't know. Say every six months. I think it's, I think it's most important to think about asset like allocation across all of your accounts. Like not, you know, if you, if, if you're, if you're, I think if, if you, you know, want to be 80% stock and 20% bonds, it's what that what matters is your overall, you know, if you look at your entire portfolio that you're 80% stock, 20% bonds, I wouldn't try to necessitate that within every individual account, just because um, that's a lot more work, I think, and probably not very tax efficient to have certain investments in certain accounts. And so I think if I would, I would do it across all accounts. And um, if that means you do it just once a year, I think that's probably fine. But um, curious your thoughts on it. Uh, Corley at most. Um, they also have uh, some plans allow you to do automatic rebalancing or sometimes they'll have notifications that are sent uh, where you can even specify a certain threshold of, hey, if this thing mm. moves beyond 10 or 15 or 20% of what I initially set, then send me a notice. Uh, that's less useful than actually automatically rebalancing it themselves. So, um, uh, again, just because Fidelity is really big in the space relative to some of the other competitors, they also they've got that feature. Um, so yeah, rebalancing. But yeah, asset location, asset location is a really good idea, which is what you're referring to, where you're a, specifically putting certain assets in certain types of vehicles. Um, you know, again, I think we may have touched on some of that uh, at a previous episode. I know we've had conversations offline about it, but uh, yeah, the idea that you're putting perhaps uh, there's a couple schools of thought where you're putting maybe those things that are throwing off income in uh, accounts, uh, uh, tax deferred accounts, uh, where you're not incurring the, ta the tax drag over time. Um, but the other hand, uh, the other school of thought would be, hey, maybe you put uh, high growth assets in, mm -hmm. say, the Roth, because mm -hmm. uh, that's the most efficient uh, uh, tax vehicle. So yeah, that's that's a really cool um, a strategy. Um, the other thing I wanted to, which is a very common one, I'd say a really common question that I get, which is like, should you roll over your old employer plan? Yeah. Um, 
Good question. I think it kind of depends. I think in most cases, probably, because I think, you know, my thinking of it is when you're no longer an employee of a company, um, and the, that company probably doesn't want to pay for you. I, I don't know if they play if they pay a participant <laughs> fee, but you know, it's a benefit that they offer to employees to attract mm-hmm. and retain employees. And when you're no longer an employee, it's they're probably not incentivized to, you know, allow you to keep using it. And certainly you can almost always keep your plan there, but I think most cases they will you'll start incurring some fees, some administrative fees that potentially the company, you know, would have been paying or was paying when you were an employee. So um so I think it kind of depends, I guess, right? Like, you know, you might be, your new, your new company might have not so attractive fund options, right? The fees might be high and you could do the math and it might be, you could come out ahead keeping the your lab past employers 401k at that 401k plan. So I guess that's the only thing I'd think about is just like, what are the fees involved? I mean, certainly there's, I think I do, I, as I start getting more more accounts and stuff, I start valuing simplicity and consolidation. So, you know, you, you can decide what that is worth to you. And because if you, you know, move your 401k fund over to your new ones, then you can um, just consolidate into whatever investments that you have at your new ones. Um, another option too, is you can also roll them into a, an IRA, right? Um, like pre-tax dollars can go into a just a, I guess, a traditional IRA, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Roth yeah. 401k well, dollars can go into a Roth IRA, um, which I would almost always recommend that one, like rolling over the, if you have any Roth 401k balances, putting that into a Roth IRA. Curious if you have any uh, examples of when you wouldn't suggest that. Just, um, I would suggest that just because I feel like in a Roth IRA, you always have more, you know, um, investment choices and lower mm-hmm. fees, right? And you have access to it as much as, you know, you want. Um, I think the only reason that you might not want to roll over a pre-tax 401k into a traditional IRA is that um, it does make doing like a normal backdoor Roth complicated and has some costs and some issues with mm-hmm. that because when you do uh, yeah, that, that, that Roth conversion, you have to look at all traditional IRA accounts. You can't like pick and choose or there's some, I don't know, they call it like a pro rata rule where you have to actually convert dollars across things. So I think if, you, if you're doing backdoor Roth IRAs, it's good to try to keep your traditional IRA balances at, at zero essentially. But um, yeah, yeah. What do you, what's your take on this? Yeah, you hit all the points, I think. Uh, yeah, investment choice, cost, um, simplicity, um, preserving the backdoor Roth. Yeah. These are all different factors that could influence, uh, yeah, whether you leave it there or whether you're, uh, yeah, planning to roll it over. Um, yeah, most, most times I think that, uh, yeah, it's probably best to roll it over, just make your life a little bit easier. And, um, like you said, even if they're bad investment choices in that current company, you know, uh, they may change them and, or you may just not be there forever. So, you know, that for a handful of years is not the worst thing in the world. So, yeah. So one, one last little curveball slash bonus is the, uh, the solo 401k option. You, you touched on it earlier. We didn't really talk about who, who can open one of them, but you know, I think technically if you have any self-employment income, you can open up a solo 401k and, um, Many years back, I did open up a solo in 401k because I was doing some contracting on the side, and um, I thought, and, and I think, but it was the, a way for me to contribute 
more more money because I can contribute. Uh, I think there was a you can contribute as the you can contribute obviously as the employee and as the employer. And so anyway, I did open up a solo four hundred one k, and for a while, I think I did roll over my company's four hundred one k into my solo four hundred one k. Just recently closed it just because it was again like it's just just too many accounts, and they also sent me something asking me for all this information, and I didn't feel honest talking about this quote unquote <laughs> business that I no longer really have. And so I think the rules are a little bit murky in terms of, are you able to keep a solo 401k running even after that business is kind of ceasing to exist? I don't know if that's really true. I just don't have any income in it. So anyway, that is an option. So if you, you know, if you have your own business or even have some income um, that you're reporting and paying taxes on, like you can um, open up a solo 401k and you can contribute, you know, funds that, um, that are, that you've made through that business to it, but more importantly, it could be a way to, you know, roll over other 401k balances as well. Like for instance, if, uh, your current company's 401k is not, you know, um, attractive or maybe they don't offer it for some reason. So that is, could be something to, to consider. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good little, little bonus there. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not, obviously it's a little more involved, uh, Definitely than, than a regular IRA, but but yeah, it could be a good option for you. Um, so, um, well, great. Uh, any any closing thoughts uh, that you may have about uh, the, the chat we had today around four hundred one ks? Yeah, we talked a lot, a whole hour. Um, but I think kind of going back to your point about target funds, like I think it's most important to to contribute. You know, you uh, you can always change the in the investment funds later you know, changing between, you know, like if you were to convert pre-tax to Roth, like that is taxable. So you do want to put a little thought into, to, okay, what kind of contributions do I want to make? Do I want to make pre-tax or do I want to make Roth? Um, and I generally agree. I think pre-tax makes the most sense. If you're, if you're unsure, I would say kind of pick pre-tax um, as the start. But um, yeah, I think just, just contribute and you can always, uh, you know, change your investments uh, later. Um but uh, yeah, it's a pretty powerful vehicle, and I think it's for mo- I, for for a lot of people. I think if you only contribute to your four hundred one k and you and you worked to to over time get to that maximum at twenty two thousand five hundred, and you do that every year for I don't know twenty thirty years, like I think you're set yourself up for money. a very great retirement, right? So, um, you know, it's certainly not so easy to you know max it out maybe your first job or even you know whatever five ten years but if you can work towards maxing that out and then you can do that i think i mean not that you even have to do that but um you know if that's your only sort of way that you're investing i think that you can definitely um set yourself pretty very well yeah far worse ways to go about uh that yeah so um yeah as you can tell everybody we're bursting with the seams uh of, of just different tips and tricks on this particular topic uh, if you've got specific questions um we will review every single 401k plan that comes to the door no i'm kidding um but just saying yeah if you've got specific questions uh yeah shoot us a note uh you know maybe it'll it'll appear in a, another episode where we circle back to this topic uh there's there's a lot of different things just because uh, again for the broad public this is the the one vehicle that really gets people started in their investing journey so um yeah feel free to reach out uh at feedback at maxfinancepodcast.com for not only this but any other uh suggestions or questions that you have related to personal finance um 
we will uh, we'll be back uh, in, in a couple weeks for another episode. But uh, until then, thank you all for tuning in and hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care. We're a new podcast and it would mean the world to us if you took a moment to write a review in the Apple Podcasts app or share this episode with a friend or family member. We'd like to hear from you. Is there a topic you're interested in? Have feedback more generally? Email us at feedback at maxfinancepodcast.com. Thanks and see you next time.